following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. There are certain moments that you never forget for soldiers in battle burned into their memory is the moment that they face the enemy actually face to face. And spiritual warfare is no different. So I was driving the parking lot at church and there in the parking lot I saw a man in a suit with pamphlets in his hand approach a church member and engage in a conversation. To everybody else it might have looked like a normal conversation but immediately I was alerted to the fact that I felt that this was a spiritual attack. So in the parking lot It was almost empty. I pulled my 72 exploding Pinto right up next to them and got out of the car with enough vigor that I left my driver's side door open. Just kind of walked over about 10 feet. Nobody was there. And they looked at me, but the suit kept talking to this particular church member. I walked up to them with a smile with a little level of youthful Mueller intensity. I I said, how's it going? And they both looked at me really, um, you know, kind of funny. And I said, you guys look really intense here. Uh, What are you two talking about? So Mr. Suit started to talk to me. And he hands me this pamphlet. And after a few direct questions, I discovered that basically he's trying to promote this idea that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, baptismal regeneration. And about three or four other key salvation doctrines were being distorted in that particular moment, and through the pamphlet itself. And so at this point, I remind Mr. Suit that uh, we at Grace Community Church at the time do not ascribe to his errant teaching. I quickly pointed out to him what the Bible actually does say, kind of walked it through with him, and was trying to be very careful and very nice, uh, not really me at all. And then I, um, he decided that uh, he didn't change his mind, but he was going to become belligerent. And so, which led me to terminating the conversation, and I reminded him that he was breaking the law, which he was. Understand, he has no legal right to be on the property spreading his vomitous satanic poison, and he must immediately leave the campus. He can be on the sidewalk surrounding a campus, but he cannot be on campus nor approach anyone on campus in order to do so. That's what we get when we get on property, not here. And with defiance, he complies and leaves the parking lot for the sidewalk. I spent a few minutes with the happy church member who was glad that I stopped by and expressed his thanks. And then I got in my car and I traveled home, but I was concerned. I was concerned because I know that the suit was not by himself. Interesting enough, I'm not yet 26 years old. I'm not an elder. And that very week at the elder meeting, comments were made by one elder about how awful, how embarrassing, how non-Christian it was for one of our pastoral staff, guess who, to be seen in the parking lot confronting the visiting suits. He is talking about me in this meeting without mentioning my name, but everybody knows it's me, all right? And he thought I was rude and unloving as he's observing me from a distance. And honestly, at that moment, it felt like somebody had stabbed my heart. And I... At that meeting, I was sitting next to Al Oliver. You don't know him, but I do. He was 300 pounds, all muscle, a previous lineman for the Rams, now turned pastor and friend of mine. 
and he leans over to me, and he whispers one word, and he goes, ouch. Okay, so that's what was going on. <laughs> Interesting enough, in the same meeting, later, our pastor at that time, John MacArthur, was late, and he began to share as he arrived about how these false teachers had descended upon our church and reported to the elders that the false teachers had actually convinced one of the GCC members to actually buy into their false teaching. Now, he, when he heard about it, he stepped into immediate action because he knew that particular person, that Grace Community Church sheep person, and he grabbed his son Matt and went to where the sheep was and physically, without not against his will at all, grabbed him and took him to a safe place and talked to him about the scripture for quite a long time. And basically, he literally saved that member from the jaws of false teaching and redeemed him from error. That man still, by the way, attends Grace Community Church. Then John went on to say this to the elders, you don't pet wolves, okay? And once you've identified them, you've got to deal with them like a shepherd would deal with wolves. You've got to rescue the sheep at all costs, no matter what. And he said, nothing must stand in your way. At this point, Al Oliver 300-pound lineman, leaned over to me and goes, wow, it's nice to be vindicated, isn't it, Chris? <laughs> it was a sweet moment, tell me. Um, but what happened was bigger than the vindication of a 25-year-old. A group of false teachers had an insidious plan, a motive. There was about 30 and 40 of them that were caravanning around the country, and they were going from place to place, visiting famous churches with well-known leaders. And they would basically stay there until they convinced someone from that particular place to become part of their entourage and to abide by what they believed in and join their false ranks. And they attempted to collect just one so-called Christian at every ministry, just one sheep from every famous flock. And they literally, their goal was to be able to say to anybody and everyone to brag to people to have people discover that their main teacher, their main heretic, actually had followers who came from every ministry in the USA. That was their goal. They wanted to say, I've got people from MacArthur's church and Swindoll's ministry and Kennedy's ministry and Sproul's ministry in my own ministry. That was their goal. All following me. See how great I am. They're all here with me. I'm the man. That was their goal. The entire motive was boasting. The entire motive was to gloat and to compare and to gain for themselves a false authority, a false superiority, and a false authenticity. Interesting enough, it was sick, wasn't it? It's warped. It was satanic. But this is exactly what you face from false teachers. Exactly. They sound accurate. They appear attractive. They speak eloquently. They teach some Bible. They're sincere, but their motives are deadly. Deadly. They're proud, cowardly, and hypocritical. Which is exactly the same kind of men that were assaulting the Galatian churches. Paul taught the gospel in the Galatia region. He established churches by gathering them together, and then he returned home to Antioch. And as soon as he got back, there were false teachers who had come from Jerusalem to begin to undermine the gospel. They said, Paul's gospel's too easy. Paul's gospel's too simple. It's, it's a gift. It, it needs to be, you know, 
immersed in religion and, and zeal and works on your part. And, and really, Paul's a, a lesser apostle. He's not really one of the twelve. He kind of is added later and really isn't as important as the rest of the guys. And really, what you need to do is be circumcised. You need to keep the law. You need to go to the festivals. You need to follow the dietary traditions, meaning you need to become Jewish in order to really enjoy genuine salvation. And they began to really, really put pressure on the believers and the make-believers in these particular churches. So Paul writes this Galatian letter to combat that false attack on, on basically the gospel and him as a true apostle communicating God's word to them. And they're really undermining the gospel that is by grace, which means a gift. It is through faith in which you submit to the work of God on your behalf, and it is in Christ alone. Any addition to grace, you already know this, is what wipes out grace. The moment you add to grace, even circumcision or law festivals, it destroys grace. When you add a work to God's gift of grace, it is no longer a gift or grace or salvation, you know, by grace, it's now salvation by works. Now, as Paul wraps up our letter this week and next week, the last one, by this particular communication, just like the suits who visited Grace back in the 1980s, Paul's going to expose their motives. He's going to tell you what's driving them. And today, let me give you some C's possibly to kind of set the stage for you. You want to check your own heart. That's letter C. Check your own heart. Make sure that you're not manifesting these motives. And by the way, I can't tell, your spouse can't tell, your family can't tell, only you and God can tell whether these are your motives. But check your heart. The next thing I want to challenge you on as we approach this text is to change your approach. As you're dealing with people who are kind of falling into a false religion or a false approach to save themselves, you want to maybe change the way you talk to them so that you would begin to help them to not succumb to these false motives, but you'd be able to actually address these false motives by the way you talk to them. So change your approach. This passage will cause you to, let us see, also confront error and confront the errant. Those who teach salvation error, they need your most loving, broken, humble, gracious, strongest exhortation. Don't pet the wolf, but tell them graciously the truth. And then these verses highlight the omniscience and letter C, character of God. God knows everything. Listen, does the Lord know what's going on in your heart right now? Yes, can you say say amen to that? He does. And he knows before you speak what you're going to say. And he knows what's in your heart, what drives your actions, what your motives are. And this is a time, as you begin to examine motives, for us to examine our motives, right? So check your heart and know that he's omniscient, and let's have our motives be directed more towards Christ and the gospel. Paul doesn't merely conclude this letter as he wraps up these final verses here. He really summarizes the whole letter in these final verses. And you're going to find them incredibly refreshing this week, and especially next week, as we wrap it up, because he taught them within the pages of this six-chapter letter that we've been now studying verse by verse for months and months and months, a message of freedom, that we are no longer under the burden of earning God's favor, but we have his favor because of what Christ has done. 
So what does he say? Well, first he exposes the bad motives, and then he gives you the good motives, all right? The bad motives are in verses 11 through 13, and these are the dangerous motives of the false teacher. The motives uh, that really of mind of heart that you need to reject. Motives that sometimes we Christians fall into, but that are motives of the flesh, What are the motives? Well, read aloud with me from your outline, if you would, that top little paragraph, and let's read the passage together and take a look at what these motives are. Are you ready? Here we go. Ready? See what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. This is an amazing passage because before we can embrace the positive motives that should drive our lives, which is really primarily being saturated and consumed with the cross of Christ, he wants to expose the things that we should move away from and make sure that we avoid and also understand that this is happening in the lives of these false teachers. So errant motives come from errant doctrine, which always results in errant living. Did you get that? Errant motives come from errant doctrine, which always results in errant living. So point number one, let's catch it. Resisting the Resist doubting the Scripture. Resist it, which was written by the apostles, designed to save and sanctify you to be like Christ. Paul says in verse 11, see with which large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now that verb see is a general command that's basically saying, hey, let me catch your attention here, Galatians. you got to see this. What is it, Paul, that we must not miss? Well, he points to his own handwriting. (laughs) Okay, why focus on lousy penmanship? Why pointing it out? Why is he, you know, focusing on that in this particular verse? Well, think about it. This strong letter which dismantled the Judaizer false gospel, this intense writing, and Galatians is intense, counters those false teachers who came from Jerusalem. This forceful Galatian message which teaches salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, this extreme letter which turns the tide against those who teach a salvation that is by works or becoming a Jew first or getting circumcised in order to get redeemed, This life-transforming, powerful epistle was officially, genuinely written by Paul. Written by Paul. Now, Paul is proving to the Galatians that this letter came directly from Paul the Apostle. Feel the weight of that. Galatians was sent by a chosen missionary who proclaimed the true gospel. This letter was written by the same man who shared the gospel with them, face-to-face, This epistle was written by Paul who taught them God's word on his first missionary journey. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul often dictated his letters to an amanuensis. Do you know what that is? An amanuensis, that was a secretary who takes dictation. So Paul would orally state it and someone would write it down. Or an amanuensis also copied manuscripts. And the Galatians was most likely written down via dictation by Paul reviewed and approved by Paul, but in order to make certain they knew it was Paul himself who's sending this letter, he writes verse 11 in his own hand. Now, why would that be necessary? Come on, don't you ask those questions when you do your Bible study? Why is that necessary? 
Because the false teachers have already lied about Paul. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 11. The false teachers already falsely claimed that Paul taught salvation was gained by getting circumcised. They lied about that. They lied. So it would not be a stretch for them to claim that this letter, the epistle of the Galatians, was not written by Paul, but that it was fake. If they lied once, they'll lie again. So Paul makes certain, verse 11, that all the churches in the Galatia region know it was truly Paul and Paul alone who wrote this letter by using his familiar handwriting, proving it was Paul and only the Apostle Paul who writes this letter, which destroys these false teachers and their lying claims. Then why would Paul say, see what, notice verse 11, large letters. Why large letters? Okay, and, you know, answer is basically making certain the Galatian Christians would recognize his handwriting, making sure they get it. Now, Paul, understand, is, you know, might have and possibly could be expanding, uh, overemphasizing his own unique writing style so there to be no doubt. Or there could be another reason. He, we've already learned that from chapter 4, verse 15, that he was suffering from a high problem, an eye disease which may have made it difficult for Paul to see. So Paul might have used an amanuensis to record this letter, and then Paul chose to write verse 11 himself as evidence that this letter was from him personally, writing large letters because he could barely see the letters himself. So all of that could be swimming around this. But here's what you got to know. Paul wants to make certain that the Galatians know this letter came from him. Are you ready? Write it down. Paul the Apostle. That's a big deal, friends. The Apostle. It was the apostles who were proxies of Jesus Christ. And a proxy, understand, means they're specially chosen to do the miracles of Christ, to speak the words of Christ, and to write the words of Christ, not merely representing Christ, but as if it was Christ through them as a proxy. It's literally Christ's words. Apostolic authorship, apostolic oversight, and divine preservation of the letters is the main reason we know a letter is to be included in the New Testament. Are you getting that? Who wrote it indicates that it goes in the New Testament. That's why Paul's going, you know I wrote this, here's my handwriting. You know this is from me. So Paul did this so that the Galatians know why it is vital for them to know this was genuinely written by Paul the Apostle. So verse 11 is an appeal to the Galatians not to doubt this letter, the Scripture. This is the Word from God, the Word of Christ through the Apostle Paul because of the massive importance of God's revelation. This is God revealing His Word. And you know how important the Scripture is, right? The Scripture is written so that we might be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And the God's word alone was written so that the Galatians and you this morning could be sanctified. John 17, 17. Sanctify them, them truth. Your word is truth. So Paul appeals to the Galatians. He's writing this. That's why he puts verse 11 there to resist doubting the scripture which was written by apostles designed to save and sanctify you to become like Christ. Watch out for any motive, any drive, any doubting that this is the word of God, that this is not written by Paul, that this is not God's word. Are you getting it? That's why he puts verse 11. Number two, 
run from all religious pride, self-glorying, and living by externalism. Run from it. Errant motives come from errant doctrine, which always results in errant living. So what's he write in verse 12? So those who desire to make a what? A good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. Now what is the hope of the false teacher? What is their motive? Answer, simply, pride. Pride. They appear to make a good showing in the flesh, in their own strength. Externally, they want to look good. Have you seen ministries that work really, 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 really hard to look good? Anybody with me? Come on, smile a little bit. It's okay. Suits. <laughs> Pamphlets. Slick communication. Blogging. Tweeting. Writing books. Ooh. Getting on the radio. A hot worship band with a jumping guitarist. Uh, lights. Smoke. Volume. Programs for youth. And the regular preaching on sex from a young, handsome, jean-wearing preacher. Now, friends, that ship has sailed. I'm not young, I'm not wearing jeans, but I did marry a jean. Okay, so there you go. It's got to be big, it's got to be showy, it's got to be slick, it's got to be happening. And the flesh here, this reference, this verse 12, is external. The flesh is your own strength, human deeds, not done in the spirit. So look at verse 12, they continually want, they continually intend to put on a good face in the flesh. Literally, they want to appear visibly attractive desire to be externally compelling. They do that in their own strength, all self-effort, all a part of the Holy Spirit. Listen, when you gather here, you know what we want? We want you to sing the Word. We want you to hear the Word so you can know the Word, the man, the, the Word of God Himself. We want you to reference Him and love Him and offer yourself to Him The false teachers are not concerned about pleasing God from the heart. They are only concerned about impressing others with showy religion, acts of piety, and a four-hour quiet time. That's what Jesus condemned in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before who? Before men, to be noticed by men. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. External religion without internal heart motives of pleasing Christ is deadly. And by the way, there are people in this room right now who've fallen into it. And all of us in this room have fallen into it once or twice or three times or four times or 20 or 30 or 50 times. Amen? We get external. We pretend to be spiritual when we're not. See, living externally is like a calloused veneer covering your heart. Living in your own strength is the coolant on a hot engine turning you lukewarm. Living outside without inside heart is what quenches the spirit. Living to please others rather than pleasing God is merely going through the motions. And some, it's not even overtly intentional. Remember that time... I mean, you got to remember this. If you're a driver, you drove home and you pulled into the driveway and you went, how did I get here? Anybody? Anybody? 
you were just like on autopilot. Are you tracking with me on that? You just all of a sudden you're like, whoa, whoa, I don't remember driving turning the car on. All of a sudden you're here. Christians not filled with the Spirit are going through the motions on autopilot. And somehow, somehow we're able to think proudly that we can actually live the Christian life in our own strength. And these false teachers were trying to be impressive, super dedicated, super committed, in order to convince the Galatians that they should embrace, okay, this salvation by works and embrace the errant teaching which called for them to get circumcised in order to become Christians. And I want one more time to warn you out of love and that false teachers are impressive. They're impressive people. Not all of them, but some of them cause you to go, wow. Powerful communicators. I was in an event once with a super, super solid exegete and a false teacher. Ended up being five years later, it manifested he was. And the crowd of 3,000 men were begging for the false teacher to return and not the Bible teacher. They're so compelling. So compelling. They're impressive. You know that David Koresh of Waco, you know, tradition, if you know that, he had memorized the entire New Testament. Friends, that's impressive. But yet he's a false teacher. So verse 12 says, watch out. They want to compel you, forcing you to get circumcised. They want to make you, you know, respond so they can look good, so they can prove their point that salvation is by works and religion. They want notches in their belt. They want to prove something to the leaders back in Jerusalem. They wanted to justify themselves, proving that they were somehow right and everybody else wrong, especially Paul. Their motives were self-glory and living by externalism. The next motive of the false teachers was cowardice. Number three, reject cowardice, self-comforting, and living by avoidance. Errant motives come from errant doctrine, which always results in errant living. Verse 12, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, why are the false teachers putting on a good show to make you get circumcised? Paul says here, they're afraid of being persecuted for and by and over the cross of Christ. To persecute is to pursue someone or to pressure someone over their beliefs with verbal attack, with physical abuse, even threatening death. And carrying that out. Persecution is forced upon you. And these false teachers are so afraid. They're doing everything they can to avoid it. They're cowards. The false teachers love their Jewish roots. They want to marry their Judaism to Christ. And they want followers of Christ to obey the law. Get circumcised. And keep Jewish tradition. But Christ did away with the slavery of religion. By providing salvation by grace. As a gift you no longer listen. You don't work for your salvation. You trust, you submit, you rely upon, you have faith in Christ's work on your behalf. That's the difference. Understand where these false teachers are coming from. Salvation by grace is an offense. One more time, it's an offense. Why? Look at verse 12. 
They want to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. You say, why? Let me give you three reasons. One, because no matter how amazingly religious and committed you are to keeping God's laws, the cross says this. You're a massively sinful person by your choices and by your nature. Your religion can't save you. Your moral lifestyle cannot save you. You are a horrific sinner. And by the way, religious people, that makes them mad. You're a horrific sinner. Secondly, even though you're super dedicated to your faith, maybe even a Pharisee, yet no matter how committed you are to live righteously, the cross says you cannot under any circumstances save yourself. God must save you. And that makes religious people mad. And number three, in spite of all your efforts of exalting God and self-renunciation, the only way anyone, anywhere, anytime, any place can be saved is by the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. On the cross. Those three truths make religious people really mad. The cross of Christ means no matter how godly you seem on the outside, you are still the worst sinner. And you are the one who made yourself sinful by your choices and by your very nature. And your only hope to be right with God now and avoid hell later is to depend on Christ alone. You cannot save yourself. Christ must save you. And religious people, self-righteous people, and people with good self-images hate that. And sometimes so much, they try to shut you up and make you change your mind. Stop saying I'm a sinner. Stop saying I can't make it on my own. And that's why 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. God's not offering you a life of comfort. In fact, you and I are not to be peacemakers to the point of compromise. And that's why the false teachers tried to change the message of grace through faith. They tried to change it. They wanted to make Christianity, which is a faith where God does all the work to save you, uh, and you do nothing into a faith like every other religion in the world where you work your way to heaven. They're trying to change it. Why? They're cowards. Because if they embrace the cross of Christ, that it is all of God, and God does it all, and you trust him alone for salvation with no circumcision, no law, no festivals, then the false teachers will be persecuted by their own Jewish people. Those people in Jerusalem are going to trash them and, and, and persecute them and make their lives miserable and cause their families to starve. The Jews at this time are looking for a savior, but not one who would save them from their sins. Really, they're, they're looking for someone who just will rescue them from political oppression. And so these false teachers are afraid of what the other Jews might say or do if they found out that they're worshiping with Gentiles. So they're trying their hardest to turn them to proselytes, so to follow the Jewish faith. But the problem is this, are you ready? The doctrine of substitutionary atonement, the cross, allows no room for human pride, religious status, or personal achievement. Let me say it again. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement, you know what that means? Your sin falls on Christ. His righteousness covers you, makes you right before God, because you submitted to him, you trust him, you're relying on his work alone by faith. That does not allow any human pride, any religious status, and any personal achievement. You bring nothing to the table. You go naked through the turnstile. There's nothing you give to earn your salvation. And the false teachers were professing Christians 
but they continued to trust themselves, and they proved they had a heart of fear. They're afraid if they go this direction, they're going to get ripped on by their own people. And again, 2 Timothy 1.7 comes into play. For God was not given us a spirit of, what, timidity, but of power and love and discipline. We can stand firm. And now, the false teachers finally manifest the most common motive of the false believer, and that is number four in your outline, refuse the hypocrisy of self-salvation. Refuse the hypocrisy of self-salvation, boasting in your own strength. Take a look at verses 13 and the end of this particular paragraph, or the first half. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. They're hypocrites. But, strong contrast, in fact, the strongest, they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in their flesh. Errant motives expose errant doctrine, which always results in errant living. Those false teachers who are all circumcised, and sadly, those make-believers in those churches who bought the requirement to be circumcised and were circumcised, they're lying. And even real believers who are deceived can fall into this to some degree. None of them obey the rest of the law, right, in order to somehow be saved by doing so. They're hypocrites. No one can keep the whole law. Can I hear an amen to that? Yeah. If you try to get saved through circumcision, then that means you're working for it. You're trying to keep the law, which means you need to keep the rest of the law. And no one today and no one back then can keep the whole law because no one in this room and no one back then is perfect. And by claiming circumcision as the way to be saved and not keep the rest of the 613 commands of the Old Testament law is hypocrisy. So Paul says, what? Verse 13, for those who are circumcised do not keep the law themselves. They, they may get circumcised, but they're not keeping the rest of the law. So they're what? Hypocrites. They're saying, earn your salvation, get circumcised, let's keep the law. But they don't keep the whole law. They violate it. They're hypocrites. Another reason why the false teachers urged the Galatians to get circumcised was they wanted to claim that those Gentile proselytes, those Gentiles turned into Jews, kind of a notch in their belts. These are a little victory lap, you know, when they can convince somebody. The more circumcised Gentiles they get collect and uh, meant more bragging rights back in Jerusalem. So verse 13, what's he say? So that, here's the point, they may boast in your flesh. Maybe you came from a Baptist background and it's like a Baptist capturing baptisms, right? You get to count the baptisms. Here we go. You can see these Judaizers and their support letter, right? Mission to Galatia. And you read the title of the main article, 200 circumcisions, right? They're boasting. Listen, showing off is one of the differences between true faith and false religion. False religion gets caught up in externals like numbers, routines, appearances. Churches that entertain rather than edify are deadly. Pulpits that base salvation on what you do for God rather than what God has done for you are external. External. True faith is inward. Inward. Though it always works its way out, right? Faith without works is dead. But it starts inward. It's an inner transformation. It starts within, where the Spirit regenerates a sinner's heart, transforming that heart, giving every true Christian a desire to obey and to please Christ. 
every true Christian. I wonder Paul was opposed to these Judaizers in every point. Their motives were evil. They're undermining God's word. They didn't serve for the glory of God. They served for the glory of themselves. They're trying to notch up. Look at what we've accomplished. They're putting all their confidence in self, not God. They're cowards, unwilling to be persecuted for the cross. And they live contrary to their own teaching, external hypocrites teaching the law, but unwilling to obey the law. Errant motives comes from errant doctrine and always results in errant living. So, would you take this home with me? There are many truths already applied in this text, but I want you to focus on three more, actually four more, and that would be this. Letter A, check your own heart. Check your own heart. You know, would you agree that sometimes, would you say amen to this, not with joy, but say it, that sometimes you're the hypocrite? Yeah. Sure. And these motives that have been exposed in this text only belong to the unredeemed as a way of life. But as a Christian, you've lived for yourself. You've even sought to glory for yourself. You've lived by your own power, in your own strength. You've lived with selfish motives. And definitely, you and I have been hypocrites more than once. And if you're a genuine born-again Christian, then you'll admit all that's true. Yep, that's who we are. Listen, you've come to our church and you're thinking, wow, look at these Christians. This, everybody around you is a broken toy, right? We're all beat up, fallen, crusty sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Can I hear an amen to that? That's where we're at. Nothing special about us except the grace of God. That's what makes it important. And you've got a heart now that desires to please him. And you won't always do it perfectly, but you have a heart that wants to please him. What did he say in 2 Corinthians 5.17? If anyone's in Christ, he's a what? New creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Romans 6.17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin in the past, as, as a non-Christian, now you became what? Obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So check your motives. Listen. Check your heart. This is where the battle is. This is the difference between a godly man and an okay Christian. This is the difference between a godly woman and a decent Christian gal. You're checking your heart, your mind. You're serving and loving and living for Christ from a heart that wants to please Christ. Listen, you can hear the word today and do nothing, and no one will know except for Christ and you. Yet the men and women who will make the greatest difference in this life for the glory of God will labor over the unseen. That's what makes an amazing believer. They labor over the unseen. No one knows, not even a spouse, the trauma and the dying to self, your thoughts and your motives are the drive of your life. And you want them to be all that Christ wants them to be. And when you go that route, you're going to see things you don't want to see. Can I hear an amen to that? 
go, man, why am I thinking this way? And why I can see I'm driven this way. But that's where the battle is. That's where it's at. And I'm pleading with you because no one will know except for you and the Lord. You're saying, Lord, I want to go after what's really going on, what's really driving. I want to check my heart and make certain I have an ongoing desire to obey, to please Christ, to love him with the things that no one knows. And even though you will fail often, daily, and if you don't have that heart to obey, even though you, have, you don't have the heart to please or love him, then you need to turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Because that heart is the heart that he gives you that you're no longer the same. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Just means you want it. You surrender. You rely on Christ. You depend on him. Letter B, change your approach. Change your approach. When you're talking to to non-believers, people with false religious systems, remember their motives that drive them. Because Paul just exposed them. Remember that. When you're talking to somebody who's religious, remember their motives. The cross exposes sin. The cross, are you ready? This is very important. Attacks human pride. It attacks it. So change your approach. Listen, one of the things that should come out as you're sharing with a non-believer is your willingness to admit your own sin. That's very uncomfortable for the non-Christian. For the believer, it's like, oh, that's who I am. Okay, that's me. That's my battle. And admitting repeatedly, only Christ can rescue you. Not what you do, not what your religion dictates, only Christ. Go after those things. Let that be central core because that's going to attack their heart motives. Are you getting it? You need to know that. And they need to hear your, your sinfulness and how God has forgiven you. And they need to hear only Christ can save. Only Christ can satisfy. Letter C. Confront the errant. Those who teach salvation error need your most loving and gracious and strongest exhortation. Remember, you're not supposed to pet wolves. They claim to be a Christian, yet teach a false gospel. Pointedly warn them of their error. You say, Chris, that's just so unloving. Listen, listen to Jesus. What did he do? Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, and you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Wow. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, because you travel around on the sea and the land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Jesus confronted them. So can you. Letter D. Cling to God's character. Cling to God's character. What do I mean by that? The Lord knows everything. He knows every thought. You're not fooling anybody. I'm not fooling anybody. We, we, don't, we can fake everybody out. You can't fake him out. Correct? He knows every thought you think, every motive which drives you. And we should take comfort in that. He knows me. Are you ready? And he still loves me. That's why we love our spouses, right? They get to know us, and you're like, and you're like, they don't have to take a shower every time they're with you. You know, I mean, it's just, 
It's unbelievable. They still love you. Psalm 139, you know, Lord, when I sit down, when I stand up, you understand my thoughts from afar, even before I think them. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways, even before there's a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it. You hide nothing from your all-knowing God. And here's what's so cool. Let his love and his forgiveness drive you to live a life that would be pleasing to him because he knows it all anyway. You, you don't have to run away from his presence. You can run into his presence because he died for you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the most dangerous motives and let us be people who deal with those things that is unseen, that no one is concerned about except for you and for anyone in this room who desires to truly be sanctified, to have our thoughts and our motives to become closer and more aligned with your word so that they would be truly pleasing and acceptable to you. Father, anybody here who finds themselves just completely exposed as a sinner, would you move in their heart for them to cry out and to cast their sin upon your son and to put it all there, say, I'm sick of it, I hate it, I want to get rid of it. I'm so overwhelmed by how I stand condemned before a holy God. And in faith, Father, would you allow them to do that so that your righteousness would cover them and transform them by regeneration so they could have a new heart that wants to please you. And while we live in this tension of our thoughts that are not always up to par and our motives, which definitely fall short, may you encourage us with your love, your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace, and rejoice that we have a God who forgives and loves and every sin, past, present, and future, was killed and punished forever on the cross. Again, we thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.